So hello again. It is end of August 24th, 2017, and we have the Oregon Journal Club in Toxicology uh, meeting with our two uh, new tox fellows and a visiting resident today. We're talking mostly about a single drug, although we'll bring in some of the things it's compared to to see how well it works and what it can be used for. Recently approved in the United States called Sugamdex. And the question, I guess, first up is why would we even need this medication? Um, I'm going to review a short piece here, which is from May 2007, Annals of Emergency Medicine. It's basically one of these evidence-based looks, and it's basically a quick two-page entitled, Does Rocuronium Create Better Intubating Conditions Than Succinylcholine for Rapid Sequence Intubation? And basically, the authors here looked over a bunch of studies. There was 50 of them all together involving over 4,000 patients that met their criteria for a well-done, well-performed uh, study uh, with good evidence. Um, and basically what they looked at is which one gives excellent by radar uh, objectivity uh, intubating conditions. And their bottom line was that succinylcholine was superior to rocuronium in achieving excellent innovation conditions. There was no difference between the two drugs in clinically acceptable innovation conditions, but if you're looking for excellent innovation conditions, succinylcholine was better. Uh, they looked at a pediatric subgroup analysis, and there was no difference. Um, and there weren't any adverse outcomes amongst these 400 patients. So the things that we often worry about and why should we replace succinylcholine is there's this risk that we all should learn and be aware of. There's certainly the risk of malignant hyperthermia, which is rare and can be scary and difficult to treat. There's a risk of hyperkalemia, which is transient, although we don't want to try to pre-select patients who are already potentially hyperkalemic or those with a variety of muscle injuries. Um, and in generally, we do a very good job at not using succinylcholine to intubate those patients. Um, and they did recommend, so, so, cite one recent study that found that ROC uh, was associated with a slight increased mortality in emergency department patients with traumatic vein injury than succinylcholine. So this sort of the old fear that succinylcholine might increase intracranial pressure is really not borne out. In fact, it may the opposite may be true. But we've been looking, I should say we, but some folks have been looking for an answer to get a safer drug with a better side effect profile than succinylcholine literally for about 20 years now. People may not remember the brief appearance on the market of a drug called rapacuronium. appeared around 1999. It was immediately hailed as the new drug that was going to replace succinylcholine. It was our fast onset, short duration. Fortunately, caused bronchospasm and allergic reactions in far too many people, and as a result of that, it was taken off the market within two years, and by 2001, it was gone. So now today, we're going to talk about Sugamidex, Sugamidex, I think that's the way to pronounce it. This is a drug that's very unique in its mechanism of action, and it can bind rocuronium and vecuronium, but since we're focused mostly on emergency intubating conditions for looking at rocuronium and essentially take this drug that often lasts for a half hour 
and make it much shorter acting. And therefore, if we needed to reverse it in those small conditions, we could. Um, no, very few of these articles actually compare rock to sucks directly uh, with Sugamidex, but we'll talk about um, a few of the things early on and how it works in adults and children in special situations. So to start out with the efficacy of the drug compared to what I think anesthesiologists usually do for reversal, which is neostigmine, we'll start with our fellow, uh, brand new fellow, Adrian. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about this article that was published in 2013. It's titled, Reversal of Rocuronium-Induced Neuromuscular Block with Sigamidex or Neostigmine, a Large Observational Study. We start out by talking about the currently available neuromuscular agents, uh, blocking agents, or reversal agents, sorry. Uh, like Neostigmine, they prevent normal hydrolysis of acetylcholine, but this has major drawbacks in the form of adverse events um, related to the cholinergic effects. And that's what's good about Sigamidex is that it is a selective relaxant um, binding agent that was developed, like you said, to bind these neuromuscular blocking agents, rocuronium and vecuronium, but it um, kind of avoids those cholinergic-related adverse effects. Um, patients who receive these neuromuscular blocking agents are at risk for pork or post-operative residual curarization. Um, and this is just um, something that kind of predicts um, complications and mortality. Um, so there's evidence that Zygamidex is associated with faster recovery from neuromuscular blockade when it's compared to neostigmine. So in this trial, this is an observational trial, and they were trying to collect real-life information about the reversal time of neuromuscular blocking drugs in the population of patients who were receiving rock curonium specifically. Um, during anesthesia for some sort of abdominal surgery. Their primary objective was to um, analyze the time of the start of the reversal administration, either neostigmine or sigamidex, to the recovery of train of floor ratio of 0.9, which just to give you a little information about the train of floor, it's not something we obviously use in the emergency department very often or at all, but um, it is a technique that's used kind of um, during the recovery phase um, after anesthesia, um, where they do electrical stimulation of the nerves and are kind of um, recording the muscle contractions. It can be predictive of when to extubate them. So that's the, the primary objective there. Secondary, they're looking at these um, post-operative residual curarization, assessing them. Um, this is defined as less than 0.9, so train of four less than 0.9, and they were measuring this at three different time periods, 5, 10, and 20 minutes after that reversal agent was given. They were also looking at um, whether or not these patients received opioids and um, if they were extubated in the operating room or if they were extubated in the PACU. So this is a multi-site site, prospective non-randomized observational study. Um, these were adult patients who were undergoing some sort of abdominal surgery, who required general anesthesia with either a shallow or deep neuromuscular block um, with rock curonium. They were allowed to get opioids. These subjects were recruited um, from both university and community hospitals. Um, and given that it was an observational study, they um, no attempts were made to influence kind of the treatment decisions as far as the dosages of the drugs. It's really up to the anesthesiologist. Um, based kind of on their usual practice. So they invited all patients who were scheduled for any form of abdominal surgery that required general anesthesia, like I said, they required this neuromuscular blocking agent. 
Um, and they, if they fulfilled their inclusion criteria, uh, which include age greater than 18, if they had an ASA score of or class of one to four, they were able to obviously provide written consent and they were undergoing this abdominal surgical procedure. Uh, they were invited um, to participate. And like I said, the primary endpoint was this um, time from the start of reversal to the recovery of train before. And that was evaluated using this acceleromyography, which um, they, with a train of four watch or a train of four watch device, which they routinely use in the ED um, during this recovery stage. Um, all these people are very familiar with this. Um, so uh, it was pretty standard in all the, the centers. Um, so, and they did try to blind the operator who was actually measuring the train of four to the, the reversal drug um, that was being administered. They did have shallow blocks and deep blocks, which they explain a little bit um, more in depth. Um, so there's two different groups there. Um, like I said, they were measuring the recovery time um, after reversal agent administered. Um, and then measuring the um, train of floor at 5, 10, and 20 minutes post-reversal administered. I'm not going to go into the statistical analysis too much. It's pretty tedious and kind of complex, but I'll move on to the results. So um, these subjects, they were recruited between February 2011 and December 2011. Um, there were 376 patients they deemed eligible, and of those, 359 were recruited and 357 completed the study. They had 12 Italian hospitals that participated, um, both university and community hospitals. Um, there were 207 that were treated with Sigamidex and 150 that were treated with neostigmine. Um, if you compare the groups, their, their demographic information um, and baseline characteristics were very comparable between each group. Um, they did subdivide them into whether they were getting deep or shallow neuromuscular block then. Um, and the duration of the surgery was about the same for both of these groups. So if you look at the deep block, there were 52 patients in that group. Um, the recovery of train of four of 0.9 was significantly faster in the Sigamidex group, that was 2.7 minutes, compared to the neostigmine group, which was 16.2 minutes. However, if you look in this deep group, there were 44 patients um, in the Sigamidex group and only eight in the neostigmine group. When they measured the train of four less than 0.9 at that 5, 10, and 20 minutes after the reversal agent, this again was higher in the neostigmine group at each of those um, time frames. Um, when you look at the shallow block, the results are very similar. There's a lot more people in this group, 305. Um, the mean time to recovery train for 0.9 was, again, significantly shorter with the Sigamidex group, 2.2 minutes versus uh, 6.9 in the neostigmine group. The train of less than 0.9 at those 5, 10, and 20 minutes from the reversal agent, again, was higher in the neostigmine group um, compared to the Sigamidex group. Um, almost everybody uh, in both groups uh, received opioids. There's only five people who did not receive opioids. These people got pretty um, minor procedures. And there was only one person who's in the Sigamidex group that was tracheally extubated in the PACU. Everybody else was extubated in the operating room. 
Interestingly, the incorrect doses of both Cigamidex and Neostigmine were um, administered for a lot of patients. So incorrect dose of Cigamidex was 15 patients in the shallow group and 32 patients in the deep group. So 70% uh, got the wrong dose. As far as the Neostigmine group, 48% um, of the patients received an, an inadequate dose and then uh, in the deep group, everybody in that group received an inadequate or um, low dose of neostigmine, essentially. 50% um, of the operators were blinded, uh, and there were no adverse effects really observed in either group during those first 24 hours. So overall, this um, time to recovery was faster in that Sigamidex group than um, those in the neostigmine group, and this was really independent of whether they had a shallow block or a deep block. Um, I mean, the time frames are pretty significant, 2.3 versus 7.6 and 2.4 versus 20.6 overall. So obviously this was an observational study. They used real-life dosages, and all, there was just a um, clinical judgment to the anesthesiologist who was administering them. Um, and it was pretty significant the amount of people who received inadequate dosing. Um, so that's something to take into consideration. However, they do say that the results of the study are very similar to the um, report, those reported in the literature that where they actually used the recommended reversal doses. So it's not like strikingly different. Um, they did notice also that in this deep neuromuscular block, um, patients were much more likely to be treated with the Sigamidex, so that's 44 versus 8 patients in the neostigmine group. And they say that this is uh, concurrent with our knowledge of neostigmine pharmacodynamics. Um, they don't really expand on that too much, but I'm guessing because of an elimination half-life of neostigmine being shorter, that can play a role. Um, they also just discussed the large variability that exists in the anesthesiologist's behavior. Um, there were 4.5% of patients who were actually extubated with a train for less than nine, which isn't, um, which is kind of surprising. Um, and then many of these patients received the wrong dosage of reversal agent, as I had noted before. And um, unfortunately, they didn't, the, a large proportion, 29% of the study population did not have train of four data after that five minute mark. Um, so if someone kind of met that um, 0 0.09, then a lot of them just stopped reporting. Um, overall, they conclude that the strength of this real life study is, despite all those limitations, is um, we do see that Sigamidex um, is a faster drug than neostigmine as a reversal agent after rocuronium administration. Yeah, good. this is sort of an early on post uh, approval in Europe of Sigamidex and just seeing how people use it a couple things. I think they were timid in using the correct dose, which they said was two milligrams per kilo, but actually for even for mild uh, paralysis should probably, probably be four milligrams per kilo. So probably all a little bit lightweight on the dosing across the board here. Uh, for deeper dosing, you can go as high as 16 milligrams per kilo. We'll see in a couple of the other studies that use as much as that. Um, very few of these patients really had deep block, most of them were shallow. But I mean, take-home message is 
when you wait for their train of four to recover to the point where you can extubate them and you give Sugamidex in about 2.2 or 2.3 minutes, the patient is no longer paralyzed and they can potentially get extubated and they don't have this recrudescence of postoperative recriorization. Uh, we'll talk about how Sugamidex works as sort of this encapsulating molecules, this great rounded octagonal molecule in which these agents get stuck in the middle of. Um, and so it's not a direct antagonist like neostigmine is at the neuromuscular junction. Um, so neostigmine takes a long time, seven, eight minutes before it starts working. So not a really kind of drug that we would consider using in the emergency room. If we had somebody who got rocuronium, we most likely would just get the airway or bag them and come up with a backup plan and just make it happen. Of course, we probably, I don't think very many people have ever, have ever reversed a rocuronium bad airway because they had to and think of something else with neostigmine. But the option now is there for Sigamidex. If you can bag them for two minutes, three minutes, you can get them back to normal and then think about what the next step is. But a good study shows that in adults, it clearly does what it says it does without a lot of side effects. So the next question is always, like, what about kids? If there's ever any scary airways, um, we start looking at the extremes of li a lot, uh, life and the extremes of weight and special situations. So, Tony, tell us about this other open trial in children. Yeah, so I had this one. It's called a comparison of Sigamidex and Neostigmine for reversal of rocuronium-induced neuromuscular blockade in children. This is a... Uh, anesthesia study, um, so all of these were in the OR, published in 2017. Um, they made a lot of the same sort of introductory points as the last paper. These um, neuromuscular blockade agents are widely used. Not a ton of um, adverse events, but they can get this post-op residual curarization, uh, or PORC, um, with knee, or with, um, you know, this, the sort of standard is to give neostigmine, and of course, as we talked about previously, you can get kind of uh, cholinergic from that, so that's an unfavorable drawback. Uh, and then one of the things that they can use to combat that is something like atropine, which can then make you sort of anticholinergic, which is another unfavorable drawback, so you're sort of balancing these two things. Um, so in comes Sigamidex, where none of this may be necessary, trying to like balance these two things. Um, it's it says fairly selective for rocuronium and becuronium, which for us, rocuronium is the one that we would be using, so this is more relevant uh, if we're talking about rocuronium, at least to the ED. Um, they talk a little bit about the mechanism of it, which I guess we already touched on. Um, as far as methods goes, this was a pediatric study, so they enrolled kids who were otherwise fairly healthy, ASA class 1 or 2, uh, age 2 to 10 years old, who are um, going to have lower abdominal surgeries. Uh, the exclusion criteria, uh, one was body mass index greater than 40, milligram, or 40 kilograms per meter squared, uh, kidney or liver disease, history of neuromuscular disease or malignant hyperthermia, uh, mental retardation, and hypersensitivity to any of the study drugs, which makes sense. They then divided those 60 kids uh, evenly into two groups. Um, they were uh, basically randomized to two groups, uh, 30 and 30, and uh, were labeled either N for neostigmine or S for Sicamidex. Um, and then as far as the blinding went, the anesthesiologist who was in charge of the train of four monitoring, which they used to sort of gauge how well the reversal went, uh, was blinded as well as the people um, 
as well as people collecting data. Um, so the patients themselves were induced uh, all pretty much in the same way. They got fentanyl and then propofol, uh, and then rocuronium was given uh, at 0.6 milligrams per kilogram to facilitate intubation, and then they all got isoflurane. Um, as far as when the surgeries were over and how they reversed them, there's a protocol here on, 370, on page 376 here on the bottom left that um, sort of says for each, the, the Sigamidex and the Neostigmine group, how they went about their uh, reversal procedure. So um, they essentially um, gave the Sigamidex group 4 milligrams per kilogram of Sigamidex, and then if they didn't reach a, um, a train of 4 ratio of 0.9, which is a sort of a surrogate for how well the re reversal worked, uh, then they would get another dose in 10 minutes. And then for the neostigmine group, um, they were given um, 0.35 milligrams per kilogram of neostigmine with uh, 0.02 milligrams per kilogram of atropine, uh, and then another dose of neostigmine, again, if the, um, if the train of four ratio was not at 0.9 within 10 minutes. So that's how they decided to do that. Their primary outcomes were recovery time, um, so um, so the time from starting the Sigamidex or Neostigmine until the TOF ratio, the, the train of four ratio reached greater than 0.9, so that was their primary outcome, and then they did a series of secondary outcomes, which includes um, which includes uh, extubation time, um, number of patients who needed a second dose of reversal agent, um, and then a series of other ones that we'll go through in the charts. Statistical analysis, I think we'll just kind of skip over here. Um, you can see, just before we go to the results on the, on the right, here's the comparison of the two, um, the two groups. Just They all had pretty good parity as far as age, sex, weight, surgery time, etc. Uh, anesthesia time was significantly reduced in group S, which we'll talk about a little bit. So. Um, as they say, like the operative operative data was all very similar except for the anesthesia time, and they actually attributed this to quicker reversal with um, the Sigamidex. So that's why they're saying that uh, Group S was faster uh, or had lower anesthesia time. Uh, and then recovery and extubation times were um, significantly shorter in Group S. So looking at sort of their secondary outcome or primary and secondary outcomes. Um, so group S recovered faster, they had faster extubation times, um, they were able to get to the PACU faster, um, and uh, more patients in the neostigmine group needed another reversal dose than did the, uh, the group S. So um, the other secondary outcomes that they talked about were uh, were uh, PACU discharge time. There was no significant distance in difference in PACI discharge time, which might be important if you are trying to move people through. Um, but as far as actual reversal, it seemed faster. They just weren't able to get them out of the PACU in any sort of more, uh, any quicker than the other group. They got them out of the OR 15 minutes faster. They got them out of the OR faster, but they couldn't get them out of the PACU 15 minutes faster. Right. So I don't know why it didn't carry over. But yeah. Um, so, I mean, that was about it as far as the, I mean, they, they wrote a whole long conclusion, or a, a lot of um, sort of pages about conclusion, but ultimately what they said was um, that Sigamidex should be considered or maybe a superior reversal agent than you're and what we're currently using. 
Yeah, so clearly, again, demonstrated now in children and adults, the reversal time, they're almost identical, 2.5 minutes, you know, after giving the drug, it uh, reversed for Cigamidex versus 12 and a half minutes for neostigmine. So comparing to the sort of the old way of doing things, neostigmine atropine, clearly Cigamidex is efficacious in adults and children. Now, it doesn't always reflect what we do in... Uh, the emergency room, so we should go, go a little further into this before we make that decision. Um, but they did mention one interesting thing. I thought that the children, they have fully developed and mature receptors, and they're much more likely to have diaphragmatic paralysis than adults. But despite that, with this pilot study, I would call it, of 80-plus children that they were able to demonstrate it's pretty safe, and they don't have any uh, recrudescence uh, of this pork phenomenon that we probably don't see much of in the emergency department because we're only using one dose rather than an operative kind of amounts. So one of the other high-risk groups we always talk about is pregnant people. Um, and we have two papers that look at different things in pregnancy, and I think the anesthesiologists think that this drug is going to be a, you know, a great step forward so you can get these pregnant people excavated quicker and off neuromuscular blockers, which can cause problems with after delivery. But one of the reasons I picked this first paper we're going to talk about is the thing that killed rapacuronium was anaphylaxis and bronchospasm. And I thought they very uh, eloquently addressed the case of someone who had an anaphylactic-like reaction and kind of proved what really caused it. So, Adam, uh, tell us about that one first. Sure. Um, so the title of this paper is A Suspected Case of Rocuronium Sagamidex Complex-Induced Anaphylactic Shock After C-Section, and this is by Yamaoka and others. And this is a case report, and it describes a um, situation where a 36-year-old woman who underwent general anesthesia because of a placenta previa uh, and C-section, she was given rocuronium to induce paralysis. And after the operation was completed uneventfully, she was given a dose of Sagamidex and almost immediately developed a clinical anaphylaxis. She developed diffuse flushing, she developed hypotension, um, and tachycardia. And uh, the uh, treating physicians responded very reasonably. They gave um, uh, histamine blockers as well as epinephrine and fluids, uh, and clinically the patient did well. What's interesting is that they also drew a tryptase level, which was, I think, important at least for you know, to publish this and call it anaphylaxis, tryptase is co-released with histamine from mast cells, and her, her level was significantly elevated. So that demonstrates that, at the very least, this was a mast cell-mediated reaction. So a patient recovered from this uh, event relatively uneventfully, and then a few weeks later, she was sent for allergy testing. And so they did a series of allergy tests. The first was she was given a dose of Sugamidex intradermally, and she was observed for 40 minutes with no response. After this, she was given an intradermal injection of rocuronium and almost immediately developed anaphylaxis once again. This was done uh, in an intensive care setting, actually, so at least they were taking good precautions, and they responded very quickly uh, to her repeat anaphylaxis and resuscitated her appropriately. Um, so later they gave... Um, and, and frankly, they didn't yeah. stop there because it was easy to conclude at that point that mm -hmm. she's really allergic to rocuronium. Right. So what happened next? Um, so at this point, um, you know, it's, it's unclear she, whether she's allergic to rocuronium or the complex. 
And so she was um, then given essentially um, uh, some time was delayed, and then two weeks later, she was given only rocuronium. And at this point, she had no reaction whatsoever. Right? Uh, a little later after that, they gave essentially a rocuronium sagamidex combination in uh, different dilutional uh, doses, and she did develop a, a localized reaction to that. So it was concluded that it was the complex of the two drugs that was causing her anaphylaxis. And aside from the questionable ethics of repeating allergy testing on someone after two episodes of anaphylaxis, I think so it did elegantly show the cause. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and I think, I mean, I, I, I agree. The elegance of it is great, and I guess the efficacy, I guess they consented or whatever that is uh, worth that you could have an anaphylactic reaction. But it's so easy to conclude after the first set of skin tests that you were allergic to rocuronium after you got Sagamidex, but it happened in the same setting. And it really was only after, the theory is, I guess after this entire case, is that only when the Sagamidex binds with the rocuronium do you have an anaphylactic reaction. Now, I don't know if that makes that much of a difference if you're going to give the drug only in cases where people get rocuronium because anaphylaxis is anaphylaxis, and you probably want to avoid the combination. But um, at least it proves that potentially she can get rocuronium again without any problems. Um, so, um, pretty interesting set of circumstances. There have been other cases of allergic phenomenon reported, as there is a large molecule and easy to have um, allergic phenomenon to. So, I said this is what damned uh, rapacuronium, a similar structured drug, but it took several years of incidental case reports before it rose to the level of a problem where they felt they had to take it off the market. Um, the second article is not all that terribly as earth-shattering, but I thought it was an also in a pregnant patient, and also sort of describes some thought processes for why Sugamidex may be superior that to neostigmine, certainly, in this scenario. So tell us about sure. pregnant patient number two. Sure. So this is also a case report, and the title of this paper is The Use of Sagamidex in a Pregnant Patient with Wolf-Parkinson-White Syndrome, and this is by Dr. Sangel and others. So uh, this case report essentially describes, um, in one-liner, the uneventful use of rocuronium and sagamidex in a patient with Wolf-Parkinson-White Syndrome. Um, <laughs> um, to give a little more detail, um, we have um, a patient uh, who was, uh, how old was she? She was a young woman, I believe in her 20s. Um, and uh, she was scheduled to have a C-section, and she was offered epidural anesthesia, uh, but declined, uh, and opted uh, for general anesthesia instead. So the plan was to give her rocuronium as a paralytic, but because she had this um, history of Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, there was concern about giving uh, a carbamate, neostigmine, which could affect her AV node and possibly uh, atropine or glycopyrrolate, which can do the same thing. And the concern was giving these medications could uh, give her a, a dangerous dysrhythmia given her history of Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome. So the hope was that a medication like Sugamidex would have no effect on her uh, cardiac electrophysiology. Uh, and that, that was the thinking behind it. So. Uh, the diagnosis of Wolf-Parkinson-White syndrome, as detailed in this case report, is not exactly clear. It's uh, given that she had a quote-unquote short PR interval and a delta wave, 
Um, the actual, actual intervals are not given, but I'm just taking on faith that she does have wolf Parkinson White syndrome. Yeah, the strip there looks pretty impressive. No, yeah. yeah. Um, and uh, so she was uh, given rocuronium for the procedure, and then afterwards was given Sugamidex at two milligrams per kilogram, and uh, had essentially a stable course. In fact, uh, the delta waves disappeared on her post-operative rhythm strip. I'm not sure if that's related, but that may have to do with the uh, anesthesia medications other than. Yeah. Or people have, re have rate related, you know, antidromic sure. uh, conduction sometimes. So. Mm -hmm. so, yeah, I mean, brief and not all that exciting, but you know, it talks about why we might want to avoid drugs like neostigmine again. That part may not be that terribly important in emergency medicine, but anesthesiologists certainly think about the risks of just waiting for the drug, the neuromuscular blocking agent to wear off, which is, I think, what they probably would have done five years ago before we had Sigamidex, um, instead of giving neostigmine to accelerate the extubation time. I'm briefly going to talk about this paper next, and then we'll kind of change gears ever so slightly. This is a paper entitled The Myth of Rescue Reversal and can't intubate and can't ventilate scenarios. And just reading the title, I thought, wow, this is going to be really interesting because it's going to be, this is what it's all about in emergency medicine. I gave a drug, I can't intubate, um, and what do I do now? Do I just, like, crike them? Or do I give Sugamidex? And I thought this was going to be the answer. But it wasn't all that forthcoming. This is really more of a thought piece where basically they said, we're going to create this gigantic mathematical model uh, based on all the literature of how fast things work. And to their credit, they, they, they took a lot of variables into it. They go, well, which are the patients that really we worry about? And this kind of goes to the extremes of not life, but the extremes of weight. It's the overweight patient who may not be breathing adequately, who I just gave rocuronium to, and now not only can't I intubate them, I can't ventilate them. And that scenario doesn't come up that often. The can intubate but can ventilate scenario does come up a small percentage of time. And really the answer there probably is to give Sigamidex and ventilate them until it kicks in. But And so their argument is what do you do for can intubate, can ventilate? Probably is true, but I don't know if I... You'd have to take a giant leap of faith to believe all their mathematical gyrations that they went through to essentially prove it's true. So they talk about how functional diaphragm activity, you know, returns, but respiratory activity doesn't recover, and you still have this arterial desaturation that exists in these patients, even with pre-oxygenation. So they presupposed a patient who, who's 40 years old, who either weighs 75 kilos, 95 kilos, or 130 kilos, and they created the onset of anesthesia, given that they would sedate them with fentanyl and propofol, and then either intubate them with succinylcholine or rocuronium, and then three minutes later reverse them with Sigamidex. And they took all of the known pharmacokinetics and sort of looked at a variety of factors and created these sort of inter interesting graphs that had to do with area under the curve for time of desaturation below 90%. That's what they were looking at, the differences between um, these body weights and scenarios. Um, so they did that and created these very eloquent graphs 
of what goes on. And again, you have to sort of believe that their math is correct and everybody's going to work the same way, which is probably not realistic. I mean, what happens is you have a difficult situation and you're trying to do a variety of things simultaneously, including attempts to ventilate, reposition, oxygenate, perhaps even try to re-intubate again. Because, I mean, realistically, in the emergency room, what happens? You don't just take one pass and say, I can't do it. Maybe someone else more experienced steps in. You try a different device, a different size tube, a different angle, a different degree of cricoid pressure or burp maneuver or something like that. This doesn't address all that. This basically basically says, I think, what we already kind of intuitively know, which is that the, the estimate of duration of oxygen sensory desaturation goes up with body size. And so the heavier you are, the more likely you are to have an area where you're highly likely to have hypoxemia, despite the fact that, yes, Sugamidex is going to reverse you in five minutes. Once your body size goes up to that 135, the chance of you actually not being hypoxemic at that point is, is very, very low. Um, they also suggested for the first time, and I'll introduce this here, is that you use 16 milligrams per kilogram, which is the dose of Sugamidex for this high deep gray block. So if you're in a situation where you really got to get them reversed, don't do the two or four, and really four is sort of the recommended dose for low-level neuromuscular rock, just kind of go all the way up. But they talk about how long it might take to mix up the correct dose, um, and they did a scenario with mannequin sort of sim training, and it took them 6.7 minutes to draw up and, and, and mix that dose correctly, which just seems like a, an exaggeratedly long period of time, which sort of makes me question some of their other mathematical assumptions as, as well, but they say they studied that somewhere. Um, so, um, so the index comes as a solution, you don't have to reconstitute it. Right. It shouldn't really take that long. It comes in a 200 milligram vial or a 500 milligram vial. So even if you had a 100 kilo person that you wanted to give 16 per kilo of two, you'd probably need three of the big vials, a little more than three of the big vials to do. Um, and so if you wanted to, like, I can't get this airway, we're trying to bag them, someone start painting betadine on their neck, mm -hmm. and someone draw up three vials of Sugamidex, let's see which one works first kind of thing. I think that's the scenario you get yourself get into. Um, so it wasn't all that enlightening of a paper, so I, I'll avoid all of the nauseating mathematical details in this thought process. But the thing I kind of kind of found completely fascinating um, with Sugamidex is that maybe there is a true tox-related use for this drug, and that if you look at um, the molecule structure of verapamil, which is actually derived from papaverine, it looks awfully similar to rocuronium. And I, not, I would have not thought of that certainly on my own, but there's a group of researchers who took a good look at that. And we have two papers here we'd like to talk about, about in an animal model using hydrosugamidex for reversal of retinal toxicity. So start out, Rachel, tell us about that first article you have. This article is titled, Evaluation of the Effectiveness of Sugamidex for Verapamil Intoxication. 
Um, and it was published in Basic and Clinical Pharmacology and Toxicology in 2013. This is a group out of Turkey. Um, their paper starts off with an inter introduction talking about um, verapamil and other cardiovascular drugs um, because of their high mortality um, in the scenario of intoxication um, and calcium channel blockers that can um, that are used to treat hypertension and rhythmic dysfunction but um, have a narrow toxic therapeutic ratio. Um, and that these overdoses are often life-threatening. Um, there are a lot of um, ways to manage these patients in overdose, um, inotropic agents, pacemakers, um, intraortic balloon pumps, and ECMO, um, but there's no specific antidote. Um, and there have been various other things tried, like intralipid and high-dose insulin and levosimendin, um, but again, no specific antidote. Um, the next part, they talk about uh, cyclodextrins, um, which are molecules that are frequently used in food and pharmaceutical industries that convert uh, lipophilic medications to a hydrophilic form. And beta-cyclodextrin um, has been uh, evaluated as an antidote for verapamil. Um, Sigaminex is a modified gamma-cyclodextrin, um, and I won't bore you with the details of that. Um, of its use in rocky running since we've talked about talked about it at length uh, thus far. But uh, the affinity of Cigamidex for verapamil is 120 to 700 times less than that for rocuronium, um, but is still known to interact with verapamil. Um, and this was in animal models that it was found. Um, there's no information available on the interaction with, be between Cigamidex and verapamil in a clinical setting. So what they hypothesized, what was since there is um, this relationship between verapamil and the beta-cyclodextrin, um, as well as Cigamidex, that um, they might be able to delay the effect in, of cardiotoxicity in the animal model um, of uh, cardiotoxicity induced by verapamil. So they gave rats verapamil and then administered Cigamidex in three different doses. Um, so onto their materials and methods section, these were Worcester rats. Um, that were sedated with ketamine and monitored with an EKG. And they were infused with verapamil at 37.5 milligrams per kilogram per hour. Um, five minutes later, the control group was given saline, and the other, the experimental groups were given each uh, 16,100 and 1,000 milligrams per kilogram of Cigamidex. Um, you'll notice that this is a significantly higher dose than our other studies that we had talked about with the 2 and 4 milligrams per kilogram, but um, 16 milligrams per kilogram is used um, to reverse rocuronium. Um, so, uh, what they did was they measured their heart rates, um, and how long it took for their rats to die. Um, and basically, we can move on to the results section. Um, there was no significant difference between the heart rate group, uh, between the heart rates in the rats, um, in various groups. Um, but time to asystole in the group that was given 16 milligrams per kilogram was significantly longer. Um, then the control group as well as the group that was given 1,000 milligrams per kilogram, and then 100 milligrams per kilogram fell between those two. Um, so the group that was given 16 milligrams per kilogram, they lived um, for, six of them lived for 25 minutes, um, whereas none of the group that was given 1,000 milligrams per kilogram made it past 15 minutes. Um, if you look at uh, table two, we can go through the numbers there, but um, the time to death in uh, the control group was 22.57 minutes, 
um, and that was increased to 33.28 minutes um, in the group that was given 16 milligrams per kilogram. Um, you'll also notice that, that uh, the time to death is only 10.14 minutes um, in the group that was given 1,000 milligrams per kilogram. And then the lethal, the lethal dose of rapamil, they were able to increase it from 13.5 milligrams per kilogram to 22.42 um, milligrams per kilogram when they gave 16 um, milligrams per kilogram of Cigamidex. Um, that dose was also uh, cut in half, so the rats died with half as much of a rapamil when they were given 1,000 milligrams per kilogram of Cigamidex. Um, and again, they, they followed their EKGs, and the dominant rhythm was uh, sinus bradycardia. They also had some slow AFib junctional rhythms um, and varying heart blocks. Um, none of which was terribly surprising. Um, the rats were not ventilated, um, and so their terminal events were respiratory arrest. Um, and so that was, um, that was their endpoint. Uh, moving on to the discussion, um, they, uh, they mentioned that the, the 16 milligrams per kilogram was able to delay cardiotoxicity, whereas um, the 1,000 milligrams per kilogram hastened cardiotoxicity. Um, for whatever reason. Um, uh, they were not able to explain that here. But they talk about verapamil, um, and um, basically it's a mechanism causing hypotension and sinus arrest and um, multi-organ failure. And then in the next section, they talk about um, basically how you should manage a patient in uh, verapamil overdose. So um, I won't I won't belabor those details. Um, but in the following section, they talk about the cyclodextrams um, and how they've been used to transform these lipophobic agents into lipophilic compounds. Um, and so if you look at the molecule, which I encourage you to do if you haven't, um, it's this donut-like structure um, with sugar rings. Um, it's very symmetric and satisfying looking, and it's on the, the front page of um, uh, of this set of articles that Zane's put together for us. Um, but it's very interesting looking at how it's this water-soluble molecule that surrounds a lipophilic core, um, which is where the, um, the verapamil gets encapsulated. Um, so in any case, its reversal is because it has um, encapsulated the verapamil in the center of that donut-like structure. Um, and they go on to talk about uh, previous studies with um, um, with the cyclodex strands, um, but in any case, those studies showed no difference in the asystole time, um, so we don't have to go through those in a lot of detail either. But um, I did find it interesting later on, and they talk about how when you're giving Cigamidex, you have to take into account that it does. Um, that it doesn't have any specificity necessarily for, for apamil, and so um, you can uh, look through the list of medications there that um, might also have an interaction with um, verapamil, like propofol and thiopental fentanyl, remifentanil, vancomycin, gentamicin, um, etc. So it's it's kind of like when you're giving intralipid, you, you don't know exactly what you're going to be binding up, um, and so you have to take that into account when you're administering this medication. Um, on to their uh, limitations. They talked about um, how they used, they used ketamine in the rats. Um, they tried to uh, limit 
hemodynamic effects of sedating them, which is why they used uh, ketamine. But you know, there's there's always going to be something. Um, they did not give any mechanical ventilatory support there either. Um, so in any case, their conclusion is that um, it showed that giving 16 milligrams per kilogram um, delayed verapamil cardiotoxicity and 1,000 milligrams per kilogram hastened cardiotoxicity. It'd be interesting to note if they had done a lower dose, lower than um, 16 milligrams per kilogram, what, what exactly the effect would be. If it was um, as much as the 16 milligrams per kilogram or not as much. Yeah, unfortunately, we don't, we don't know. So you're right. Yeah. Standard use right now for Sigaminex in humans, which are not the same size as rats, no matter how you scale it down per kilo, is four. Right, but there are some articles <laughs> that suggest as much as 16 is safe, which is good, and actually may help reverse deep neuromuscular blockade. So I think it's a reasonable pilot dose-finding animal model for does it work with rat mill, and you really can't say did we resuscitate them all or not. You can just look at time to asystole because lots of other things that we would have done in a normal patient didn't happen. These patients, these mice were not ventilated, for instance. Mm -hmm. They certainly didn't get pressors. They didn't get fluid resuscitation. They didn't get atropine for the bradycardia. They just got you know saline versus Cigamidex. Mm -hmm. But I think it's interesting and it's intriguing and it looks like it probably does a little bit of something. Um, so the next question would be, if you're pursuing the same line of reasoning, would be does something like intralipid, which binds a bratmilk and keeps it in a lipid micelle, work better? Or does it somehow, when you use both of these things simultaneously, have some kind of interaction we can't anticipate? So again, starting with an animal model is the best we have right now, but Mike, tell us about the study you reviewed. So this one is called Comparison of Effects of Separate and Combined Sugamidex and Lipid Emulsion Administration on Hemodynamic Parameters and Survival in a Rat Model of Rapamil Toxicity. This is published in Medical Science Monitor. Never heard of it before, but uh, in 2016, this is Tolgar and colleagues uh, out of Turkey Again, I don't, this wasn't the same group, right? Just, no. no it's I, I think this drug was just available there, you know, and so and people are looking for like, The rats don't care which country they're in when you experiment on them. <laughs> so, uh, this is a pretty similar setup as the one Rachel just described. I won't go over the background. We've been talking about all that. So they have, this one is interesting because we're doing Sugamidex, intralipid, and then Sugamidex and intralipid combined, plus a control group. So they've got four groups. Um, they have seven rats in each of those four different groups. They anesthetize them with intraperitoneal ketamine. Um, they wait for them to kind of stabilize out and have adequate anesthesia, put in arterial and femoral cannula in a rat. And then they get the same doses and Rachel's of 37.5 milligrams per kilo per hour of verapamil. Um, and then they, that's time zero when they start the infusion and they continue that until the rat died. Um, and of course this study, just like Zane mentioned, is certainly not designed to prove efficacy in a normal clinical setting, but to just cleanly show does this if therapy have any plausible intervention because they're starting verapamil by an IV infusion and then starting a treatment five minutes later, which has almost zero applicability to real life. 
but it could at least say, you know, is something happening here? So in each of the groups, at five minutes after the infusion started, um, they gave them the treatment. They gave them up to, they, as they say here, up to 12.4 mLs per kilo of saline, or they then matched that for all the different um, interventions, which, as I kind of calculated over, it's pretty much the same. It's about 15 per kilo um, in a human. Those are the things they estimate there. So 12.5 mLs per kilo is not a huge volume resuscitation. So this is like one fluid bolus in a human that you're trying to resuscitate is the amount of volume that they were given. Um, then they had Sugambidex. They got the 16 per kilo bolus and then gave enough saline on top of that to match an equal amount of volume. Because um, that's a very tiny amount of Sugambidex volume-wise. Then they had another group that got 20% intralipid at 12.4 mLs per kilo. I thought this was interesting because our normal bolus dose for intralipid is 1.5 mm -hmm. mLs per kilo. Later in their discussion, they say, well, it's different in rats. And I have not read enough animal studies to know why rats require 10 times as much intralipid to be effective. Um, but that would be above our max dose mm -hmm. to be giving that quantity in or close to it. Humans are like at the max dose, right? Yeah, some people say eight's the max. Some people say twelve's the max. Yeah. But so we're, we're somewhere up there, close above to the maximum max. dose, or yeah, as a single bolus that they're giving them. Um, and then they do a combination where they give both sugamidex and then enough intralipid to get twelve point four, and that's they're almost getting just as much intralipid in that. Uh, fourth group where they're getting both because the volume of Zygamidex to get 16 mg per kilo was like very tiny. So um, it's still a very large amount of intralipid to make it up to that point. So I think if we kind of come down to, let's look at table one. Um, let's say one thing I pointed out, they did not make it clear to me what their predefined primary endpoint was going to be. They just said everything they're going to measure. Um, but I think it's still fair because they had significant for both time to death and lethal dose of verapamil, even though their hemodynamic parameters weren't as uh, impressive. So table one, you can see all the rats were about the same. And then those bottom two parts of table one, time to death, you can see that group SL and SL, those three on the right-hand side of the graph, have an average time to death somewhere in the 30 to 40 minute range, while the control group was 20 minutes. Um, and so that was a significant difference of all of those three compared to control. And they said among the three intervention groups, there was no difference. So even though the 49 looks like a lot more than 35, there was no difference comparing each of the interventions against each other. Uh, same goes for the lethal dose of arapamil, 13 mg per kilo versus somewhere in the 20s to 30, that that was a p-value of 0.049. It just made it, and they don't give confidence intervals, unfortunately, but we get their p-values at least. Um, you can look at all this hashed out in different ways. Scroll down to the next page and see in figure one, look at the box plots of time to death, and see there's, you know, there's very little overlap. There's like only two rats that survived longer than 30 minutes in the control group, and only one rat that died less than 25 minutes in in the intervention group. So you can see those boss, box and whisker plots overlapping a little bit, but it's very little. 
Um, and then they've got some Kaplan-Meier curve on if they're in figure two. You can see the blue line on the left is a control group and then the other three um, come out a little bit longer and there's no statistical difference between any of them. And then I think we can just go down to tables two and three on that same page. Um, at 10 minutes, they said there was a little bit difference in heart rate. The control group was more bradycardic. Um, and, but there was really no difference in mean arterial pressure. A bit of that is just the function that they're measuring this only at 10 minutes. Um, so if you go down to the following page to figures four and five, you can see they had decided to just measure it uh, 10 minutes on page 988 there. But you can see that obviously those rats are surviving longer and their heart rate is staying up higher longer um, and their blood pressure is staying up longer. Um, and some of the limitations, like I said, they weren't mechanically ventilated, but none of the rats suffered a respiratory arrest. Apnea was the final event. They seemed to continue breathing even once they became you know, right into the end of when they were getting pulseless. So they weren't having a respiratory arrest followed by a cardiac arrest. And you wonder what, what does ketamine do to hemodynamics? You give someone 60, 60 milligrams per kilo of ketamine. There's not a gigantic dose, but I guess it's intraperitoneal, so that's different than what we would use in humans. Mm -hmm. I mean, we give you know five IM mm -hmm. per kilo sounds like a monster dose. So mm -hmm. Sixty, it's huge, but I guess intraperitoneal kinetics are a bit different. Um, so I think, like we said, we know it's not proving clinical use because we're not doing the other interventions. It's rats; they get poisoned and treated within five minutes of starting it. It's by a IV infusion, but it was better than uh, just simple volume resuscitation and equivalent to intraliquid, but no benefit from combining the two. Yeah, so, so, yeah, yeah. so I think it's, you know, if anybody is going to take the leap, and it's probably not ripe for prime time to take the leap yet of using Cigamidex for baratinil poisoning, and I wouldn't generalize it to all of the beta blockers because they're all very different structurally. Right. But if one was going to do it, probably it would be after they got a volume load, after they got a presser or two, mm -hmm. after they got maybe calcium, and maybe after they got intralipid. So the question is, would any of those things interfere with Sugamidex, or would Sugamidex interfere with any of those things? I think the small and short answer that this study provides is it probably doesn't hurt in an animal model if you give intralipid mm -hmm. and Sigamidex simultaneously, and maybe there's a non-statistical slight advantage to doing that. So, and it, the dose, if one was going to do it, is not the reversal dose of four milligrams. It would be the 16th mm. milligram. So, it'd be nice. There's probably a few steps that we all need to do before someone jumps in there and just says, hey, let's try this, because they talked about this paper somewhere. Yeah. Well, uh, it'd be nice to get levels, like give somebody regular rat mill doses and then mm -hmm. give them sugamidex. You don't need, you know, theory, healthy volunteers the, and then get developed levels. The drug has developed assays for measuring sugamidex and rocuronium complex, and they do that with sugamidex and verapamil or free and bound verapamil, yeah, with sugamidex. I mean, the adverse effects 
more attractive than intralipid because that's what we worry about. Some of them be flooded with fat. We can't check their labs. They're going to get pancreatitis or ARDS or something else. And yeah. But we don't really know what, what the adverse effects may be of leaving someone on technically, I don't know, a Sugabidex drip for a day and a half. Because right. the question is, how long does this last for if you give it? So a lot of unanswered questions before we try this. Yeah. We don't know how long it would last if it worked. We don't know what the right dose is. The 16 in rats may not be the same as 16 in humans. We don't know what the binding ratio is in humans. They say it's somewhere up to 700 times, which implies that you have to give away more than what we use for reversal in anesthesia mm -hmm. with rock uranium. Um, and it'd be nice to get some like you human volunteer levels. some rapamil patients if they are complicated by ARDS or they're on ECMO and you're giving them a little paralytic yeah. to then obviously Sugamidex is going to cause problems. Right. It, well, I mean, there's off, but there's a way around that one. I mean, that's, that's, it's a well-noted issue. Yes. We don't want to like, if they're innovated and they're on rocuronium or vecuronium, we're going to have a problem. Yeah. But so most people in the ICU are either on pavilon, which it is binding a little bit to, but you just switch to atricurium, assist atricurium, which is a completely yeah. Sort of differently structured neuromuscular blockade and does not, at least for all we know, does not, Sugamidex does not reverse those. So yeah. you put someone on an Imbex strip, then they should be fine if you need to paralyze them. Yeah. And price wise, Sugamidex, as I looked up, is <laughs> one or $200 a vial, which is not cheap, but it's not, if you've got someone on ECMO in the ACU, it's not Kaisendra. Yeah. It's not. It's pretty cheap. It's not it's a not pra It's not Pradex or yeah, one of those other things that we're practifying, yeah. yeah. So it'd be interesting. I, I'm, we'll, we probably will not be the ones to experiment and try this in humans yet. I would say it's too early to tell. I would like to see more data on levels and duration and everything else. But I, I assume that somebody, either internationally or otherwise, might try this in a real life scenario. And uh, maybe, maybe I don't want to single anybody out. But um, so we'll see. But I thought it was intriguing. That this drug that we focused on one use for may have other uses that may be more important to us in toxicology. And so we'll go ahead and wrap it up and we'll see everybody next month on the Tox Podcast.